Our sermon text this morning comes from Joshua chapter 9. As soon as all the kings who were beyond the Jordan in the hill country and in the lowland all along the coast of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites heard of this, they gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard that Joshua had, had done to Jericho and to Ai, they went on their part and acted with cunning and went and made ready provisions and took worn-out sacks for their donkeys and wineskins, worn-out and torn and mended, with worn-out patched sandals on their feet and worn-out clothes. And all their provisions were dry and crumbly. And they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, We have come from a distant country, so now make a covenant with us. But the men of Israel said to the Hivites, Perhaps you live among us. Then how can we make a covenant with you? They said to Joshua, We are your servants. And Joshua said to them, Who are you, and where do you come from? And they said to him, From a very distant country your servants have come, because of the name of the Lord your God. For we have heard the report of him, and all that he did in Egypt, and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon the king of Heshbon, and to Og the king of Bashan, who lived in Ashtaroth. So our elders and all the inhabitants of the country said to us, Take provisions in your hand for the journey, and go to meet them, and say to them, We are your servants. Come now, make a covenant with us. Here is our bread. It was still warm when we took it from our houses as our food for the journey on the day that we set out to come to you. But now, behold, it is dry and crumbly. These wineskins were new when we filled them, and behold, they have burst. And these garments and sandals of ours are worn out from the very long journey. So the men took some of their provisions, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. And Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live, and the leaders of all the congregation swore to them. At the end of three days, after they had made a covenant with them, they heard that they were their neighbors and that they lived among them. And the people of Israel set out and reached their cities on the third day. Now their cities were Gibeon, Sapphira, Beeroth, and Kiriath-Jerim. But the people of Israel did not attack them, because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. Then all the congregation murmured against the leaders. But all the leaders said to the congregation, We have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we may not touch them. This we will do to them. Let them live, lest wrath be upon us, because of the oath we swore to them. And the leaders said to them, Let them live. So they became cutters of wood and drawers of water for the congregation, just as the leaders had said of them. Joshua summoned them, and he said to them, Why did you deceive us, saying we are from very far off, when you dwell among us? Now therefore you are cursed, and some of you shall never be anything but servants, cutters of wood and drawers of water for the house of my God. They answered Joshua, because it was told to your servants for a certainty that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you. So we feared greatly for our lives because of you, and we did this thing. Now behold, we are in your hand. Whatever seems good and right in your sight to do to us, do it. So he did this to them and delivered them from out of the hand of the people of Israel. And they did not kill them. 
But Joshua made them that day cutters of wood and drawers of water for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord to this day at the place that he should choose. This is the word of the Lord. Let me ask you to start off. Have you ever been tricked before? Have you been tricked? Yes. Nice. Maybe that was today when we got you to do the, the music. Was that the trick? I hope not. Um, I have, right? Uh, not too long ago, actually, I was tricked by a friend. Um, she asked me to borrow something of mine that was pretty valuable. Um, and I knew that she wasn't the most reliable person. Um, I knew she might have questionable motives. But I knew also that she was in a really hard place and she was being really genuine when she asked. And so I agreed uh, to loan her this thing. Uh, but really within a few hours, it was obvious to me uh, that I had been tricked and that this person who I considered a friend had actually taken advantage of my kindness. Uh, she used that opportunity to steal from me, to rob me, to take something that belonged to me. And I think the most painful part of it was just how much it hurt. If you've ever been tricked before, you know that it's, it's kind of embarrassing. You, you feel a little bit demoralized. You feel humiliated, right? That, that, that somebody uh, could pull one over on you. But then there's that moment where at the end of the day, you can still take a little, uh, find a little comfort knowing that, well, it's not your fault, right? It's never your own fault when, when, when you, out of the kindness of your heart, try to help someone and then they take advantage of you. You can, you can rest knowing it's, it's not all on you. But here, in our passage, in Joshua chapter 9, we see something very different from that situation. A lot of the same emotions are present, right? The, the shock, the embarrassment of being fooled. The, the leaders of Israel feel a lot of those same things. But the key verse that we're reading today is not about the sin of the Gibeonites. It's not about the sin of the people who deceived them, but it's actually about Joshua and the leaders. It's about their failure to seek the Lord. And so today, we're going to focus on that especially. We're going to focus on that dynamic and see what exactly we have to learn from this old story. Um, this, this passage is essentially a passage about the consequences that come from living a life apart from God's leading power. It's the consequences of, of, that come from living apart from intimate connection with God. And so today I want us to look at three things. I want us to see through this passage the spiritual reality of our world, our call to seek the Lord, and then finally our hope amidst our weakness. So we'll look at the spiritual reality of the world, our call to seek the Lord, and then our hope amidst our weakness. Okay, so let's talk about the spiritual reality of the world. On the surface, uh, this is a story about people who are behaving rationally, right? People who are actually acting pretty shrewdly. And if you were able to follow while I was reading through the text, it's kind of hard to, to fault either party just on the surface. The Gibeonites, right? They're just being smart, aren't they? 
These people have heard about Israel. They have heard about this powerful God who has come and wiped out the mighty city of Jericho, who has taken over Ai, and they are storming through the land of Canaan. And you know what? They don't want to die. In fact, if they could not fight, that'd be the best. They're just trying to preserve themselves. And so they come up with this plan. They know the people of Israel aren't going to enter into a covenant with them because they're their nearby neighbors. So they act like they're not. And they put on these old, disheveled clothes. They make themselves look a mess. They get these dry and crumbly bread. And then they come to them and, and act like they have come from a very distant country. And they convince these guys to make a pact with them. Similarly, look at Israel. They're just trying to be kind. Here are these people who have come to them from far away, talking about the, the power of their God, and they, they want mercy. They want protection. And so the people of Israel, they agree. They make this deal with these people who just show up at their doorstep. But as innocent as all that may seem, on the surface, Joshua is trying to let us know that, that this is actually grievous sin that we're reading about. And the first few verses are how we know. That's where, where the author's taking us, right? You, we read it just a second ago, but the first four verses of our passage, it says, as soon as all the kings who were beyond the Jordan in the hill country uh, heard of this, the, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, as soon as they heard of this, they gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, they on their own part acted with cunning. So the situation is, last week we read about Achan's sin, remember? He took some of the, the devoted things out of the nation of Ai, and when they went to attack, Instead of achieving this instant, powerful defeat, uh, they failed. And they went back later after they had cleansed themselves and they, they took it over. But that failure was a key moment. Because when the people of Canaan saw that Israel wasn't invincible, they stopped being so afraid. And here we see this coalition is forming. All these nations are, are gathering up together. They're ready to go into the fight. These nations are no longer afraid. There is a band of people rising up in opposition to God. And Gibeon is a part of that opposition. But they're taking a different path. Rather than getting out swords, rather than getting out weapons to fight, they've decided to fight in a much more cunning way. And you need to remember, this is not just any kind of battle, okay? This is not just any nation fighting against any other nation. The book of Joshua has already made this abundantly clear that this is a spiritual battle that's taking place. That this is not a war between two rival nations of, of equal uh, likelihood that one will succeed or fail, but this is actually a battle between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man. And so the Gibeonites, when they come with this trick, they're actually coming in opposition to God himself. 
They are a part of an attack against God's kingdom. And their tactics are pretty good. They're, these tactics are actually much more successful than the other coalition that's forming to try and fight against Israel later. So we might have some sympathy when we first read the story or when we try to analyze the situation, but, but Joshua wants us to know that there is much more going on here than what we see on the surface. This is essentially, at its heart, this is a spiritual war. And at this crucial point in the war, we read this. So the men, verse 14, so the men took some of their provisions, but did not seek counsel from the Lord. They did not seek counsel from the Lord. How does that verse make you feel? When I read that verse, the number one thing that I feel is conviction. I feel conviction over my own sin. Maybe you can relate, but I just look at my own life and I think about how many stories in my life could be punctuated with that same phrase. Logan observed the facts. He used all his power of reason. He did the most logical, reasonable thing, and he came to a conclusion, and he acted on it. But he did not seek the Lord. He did not consider that there could be more to this life than his eyes could see. He did not perceive that there is a spiritual reality to the world. Uh, my wife, Melissa, she's taking a class up at the seminary right now. It's a class called uh, Spiritual Power for Ministry. And every week she comes home and tells me some of the things that she's been learning there. Um, and it's always really interesting things. Uh, but one of the first lessons that the professor was teaching uh, this particular professor has, had spent most of his life overseas doing missions work. And he was just trying to set up the different perspectives that we have as Westerners on spiritual things. And he was sharing uh, an example of a Westerner and a non-Westerner standing by a roadside, watching cars pass by all day long. Uh, and he... And then eventually, at one point during the day, one of these cars veers off the side of the road and falls down into a ditch. Now the Westerner looks at that situation, meaning you, me, we look at that situation and we say, huh, I guess something happened. Maybe they got a flat tire, or maybe an axle broke, or, or maybe, who knows, maybe they fell asleep and they veered off the side of the road. But a non-Westerner looks at that same moment and says, I wonder what happened there. Because every other car was allowed to pass without a problem. But something prevented that car from making it through. Now we hear that, and we kind of think that's strange, right? But the truth is, most of the rest of the world lives with a spiritual awareness that we don't have. 
Most of the rest of the world believes that there is something more to life than what we can observe with our eyes. And we don't. In fact, we think that stuff is, well, we think it's silly, right? We think it's kind of backwards. We, we think people need to, to grow out of that. It's what a scholar actually might call uh, cultural imperialism. <laughs> when we look at those cultures and we, and, we, and we come to it and we say, we Westerners, uh, we have things figured out. We are the smart ones. We are the advanced ones. And the rest of the world, well, they need to catch up. They need to figure out what we've figured out. And when they do, they're going to leave those childish, backwards ways of thinking behind. But what if, what if, just think about it for a second, what if your worldview isn't progress? What if it's a mistake? What if it's not that the Western world has finally seen through all of that foolishness, but actually that we have become spiritually blind? See, that's what Scripture tells us. And Joshua, here in this verse, he's reminding us of a truth that we have ignored to our peril. He's reminding us of a truth that there is such a thing as evil in this world. And that evil is hunting us. That evil is gathering together to defeat God's plans. And unless we learn to lift up our eyes unless we learn to look for it, unless we learn to perceive the enemy's cunning and deception, unless we learn to seek the Lord, we're doomed. Just look at these Israelites. Look at them. If we lived our lives like them, if we do this without considering the spiritual reality of the world, then just like we see in this text, we're going to suffer. That's the point. That's the first thing I want us to see. We live in a world, the Bible says it all throughout, and I would say your hearts are trying to tell you this anyway, but we live in a world where there is more than what we can see. Where there is a larger story that's playing out. It's the story of a king who is bringing in his kingdom. And in the midst of that story, evil is at work. Our enemy is hunting us. And he is cunning. He's trying to do whatever he can to interrupt that story and to bring pain and chaos and confusion into your life. Now, that means, if that's the case... If there really is this spiritual reality, then our call in the midst of it is to seek the Lord. And here's the second thing I want to talk about. Our call is to seek the Lord. The book of Ephesians, uh, the Apostle Paul, towards the end of this letter that he writes to the church, he talks about the spiritual reality of our world. He says, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. But we wrestle against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. 
Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. Okay, New Testament. Paul, he's saying the exact same thing. He says, there is this spiritual reality to our world. And it's not enough that we simply register that fact. It's not enough that you simply say, okay, I understand in my head, there's this spiritual thing going on, I'm just going to store that away. But he says that we need, if this is true, then we need to learn how to engage that reality. We need to live in constant communication with God. We need to put on the armor of God. We need to pray continually because that is the place where we're going to find power. That's how we are going to be able to withstand the attack of the enemy when it comes. So let's look at that verse again in Joshua 7. So the men took some of their provisions, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. Okay, what's the implication of that verse? Why does the author mention that they didn't seek counsel of the Lord. Why is it in there? Why did he include that detail? Well, the implication is that had they done that, things would have turned out differently, right? Had they sought the Lord, things would have been different. God, that God is powerful. That God is interacting with this world. That had they sought Him, He would have shown up in some way to direct them away from that disaster. The Israelites, now they knew that, right? They knew that this was a tremendous mistake. They knew that God was powerful, and that's why as soon as they figured it out, as soon as they found out they'd been tricked, they, they changed their course, right? They, they, they stop ignoring God. And we see that because they, uh, they keep their covenant, right? They, they, they don't choose to just go ahead and wipe them out because they messed up. But they realize that God's powerful, that God is present. And so they're not going to break the covenant they've made. They would, they would never do that. They're, they, they believe that their God is with them, and so they're not going to take His name in vain and commit some horrible crime on top of what they've already done. But that's not the case for us. See, we, we don't think God is powerful. Not really. right? We don't really expect God's going to show up in our lives, right? And not just outside of the church. I'm talking about even in the church. We don't really believe that God's going to do anything, do we? Practically, we are a people who live like atheists, right? We have the theology, but it, it's not real to us. The gospel is not, like Paul says, the power of God for our salvation. It's just a narrative that we have. A story that we tell ourselves to make ourselves feel better. Rather than the gospel being a place where we experience God's power working through His Spirit to transform us into different people, it's just something we use. We use the message that Christ died for our sins what, to make us feel better, right? We don't live lives that are connected to the power of God. We don't expect that God is going to actually show up and do anything 
And I know that because of the way we live. Right? That shows up in the way we just don't seek Him all the time. Do you realize that God, throughout Scripture, makes tremendous promises to you and to me? God makes amazing promises about what will happen to you in your life if you would only seek His face. He promises that there is power when we seek His counsel. I mean, let me just mention a few of them, right? You know them. Matthew 11, He says, Come to Me, all who are labor and who are, who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Anybody heavy laden here today? Lamentations in the Old Testament. Chapter 3. He says, In the Lord is good to those who wait for Him. To the soul who seeks Him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Or Philippians chapter 4, right? We, we know that one. We just looked at it recently. He says, and the peace, he says, but do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I mean, those are just a few things. But over and over again, God makes these kind of promises. He tells us that spiritual power comes when we seek His face. That when we seek Him, not only are we going to find some kind of comfort, but God is actually going to change us. And He's going to change our situation. He's going to change things. But I want to point out, this is not, I'm not saying this to give you a guilt trip, right? This is not a, a call to a duty. God doesn't promise these things to burden you. These are not texts that are meant to make you feel bad. Even in this passage, in Joshua, the point is not, don't forget to pray, you guys. This is a call to intimacy with your God. This is a passage that is showing us how God longs for connection with His people. God longs to be in relationship with you. Think about it this way. If you want to understand the, the problem in Joshua 7, imagine if, if you're married, even if you're not married, you can imagine what it would be like if you were. But imagine in your marriage if you go and you do something enormous without consulting your spouse. Say you buy a new car, a big expensive new car, and you come home and you have this new car and this big new contract and all this new debt, <laughs> your spouse would have the right to be upset, right? Why didn't, why didn't you ask me? Why didn't you consult with me? Why didn't you, you talk to me about such a, a big decision? This is going to impact us both for a really long time. That's the issue at the core of Joshua 7. It's not just that these leaders failed in their duty to pray to God. It's that their actions showed that, that in their hearts 
there was a lack of trust. That there was a lack of intimacy with God. That there was a lack of communication with their Heavenly Father. And what about you? What do your actions show? You know, God is calling you to intimacy with Him. He's calling you to trust Him. He's calling you to seek His counsel, to sit in His presence, to experience His power. In Isaiah chapter 30, when God is speaking to His wayward people, He says this, He says, in repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. But you would have none of it. We are a people who have taken our lives into our own hands. And is it any wonder why our faith is so frail? <laughs> is it any wonder why our faith is so emotionless, so cold, so distant, why God seems so far away? See, this story, it could feel very disconnected from us, right? It happened literally thousands of years ago in a context that is completely unlike our own context. But I want you to see, you face this situation every single day. We face these kinds of moments all week long. These decisions, right? Decisions about what job we're going to take, where we're going to live, how we're going to fill our time today. How we're going to respond to our spouses in an argument. How we're going to love our family members. What if, instead of just looking at the facts, using your powers of reason and logic, trying to come up with the best solution, what if you, this week, could live in confidence that God is with you? That you have sought Him. That His power is real in your life and that He is near to you. Well, you can. There is a God who has the power to raise the dead and that same God dwells in His people. That same God is calling you this morning to an intimate connection with Him. See, there is a spiritual reality to this world, and our call, our call is to respond by seeking the Lord, by seeking His face, by experiencing His power. And that brings me to my third point, which is our hope amidst our weakness here. Because we have weakness here, right? We've already, we all struggle. There was a lot of consequence to this decision that the leaders made in Joshua 7, right? Or Joshua chapter 9. Um, this is the beginning of the downward spiral here. This is the beginning of the partial conquest, right? From, from now on, no longer are they just going to go and obliterate the, the place and, and come in without any, uh, without much effort, with, with things going super smoothly. Instead, now... The Canaanite presence is always going to be there. 
now that they've made this covenant, they will not be able to carry out God's commands perfectly. And now, if you read the story, slowly, over the course of many generations, exactly what God warns about will start to take place. That the influence of this uh, pagan worship will start to draw the people away. And eventually, the whole nation is going to fall away from the Lord. But, there's a tiny thread of hope that runs through this story. And it comes in our last verse. See, once Joshua and his leaders had realized the mistake they made, they can't go back on the promise now, but it says that in the very last verse, Joshua made them that day cutters of wood and drawers of water for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord to this day in the place that he should choose. Now that seem, might seem like a random detail. I know if I'm like reading this in my one year through the Bible thing, that's a verse I'm just going to move right by, close the book and get ready for chapter, chapter 10 the next day. Um, but this is actually an important note. These people, when they came to the Israelites, they came dishonestly, right? They, they lied about why they showed up. They didn't mention they, that they knew about Jericho or Ai or any of that stuff. They lied about where they were from. They lied about why they wanted to seek a treaty. But there was one small piece of truth in what they had said to Joshua and his men. They had heard about the power of God and while they didn't know much about him, their faith wasn't like Rahab's faith. They hadn't totally uh, come to understand who God was. They hadn't placed faith in him. But they knew that whoever this God was, they really did not want to stand before his judgment. And hundreds of years later, after all this bad stuff has, has taken place, after the nation has all of Israel has turned away from the Lord. After they are defeated by Babylon and the people are, are taken away from Babylon to a, a far and distant country, there's a moment when Israel is allowed to return. And they come back with a small group of families to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And one day to rebuild the temple. And you know what? If you flip through the pages of your Bible, if you go to the book of Nehemiah, you can read about this story. And, and towards the end of the story, they give a list of all the people who have traveled these, uh, this long distance over the course of, of many weeks to get back to Jerusalem, to rebuild a place to worship the living God. And you know, in that list, there's a bunch of Gibeonites. There's a bunch of people who are listed as the sons of Gibeon. That somewhere along the line, in the course of these hundreds of years, God had taken these people and woven them into the tapestry of his great story. And I think it starts here. He brought them near the altar, right? Joshua puts them in this place where even when they don't understand God, they can be in proximity to God. He brought them to the altar 
where they saw his power on display day after day. He showed them who he was and how he forgives sin. And he invited them into intimacy with him. And that's where the story really starts to impact me as I encounter it. If I'll be honest, you know, I open up these passages. Uh, I talked about it with Steve-O this week. We read this and we're like, man, what are we going to say this week? <laughs> what does this have to do with anything? Um, but when I read this passage, the thing that really starts to, to hit my heart is that truth. Because I can look at my life and I can see the damage that I've done by not seeking the Lord. I can see the damage that I've done to myself because I've lived apart from His power in my life. I can see the pain that I brought to the people I love by not walking in step with Him, by not seeking His counsel. I, I see deep wounds in my life where I haven't received His love in my heart. And I live like an atheist. And I live like an orphan. I see how I've hurt my wife and my kids. I see how even in this church, I've operated faithlessly so many times. So many times that I'm, I'm ashamed to even admit it. My sinful effort to operate in my own strength apart from dependence on the Lord, it's hurt people. It's, it's brought real pain into this world. Maybe, maybe you can relate to that. Maybe you know what I'm talking about. But this story with the Gibeonites is a picture of just how powerful our God is. That he can take the worst things that we have done and somehow he can turn it into something beautiful. He can take the choices that I've made out of pride and self-centeredness and he can somehow use that for his glory. You see, we are like those leaders in Joshua, right? We, we constantly live without seeking God's will, but... You know, we're also like the Gibeonites. We are a people who come to him imperfectly. We come to him with, with mixed motives, impure hearts, half-hearted submission. We come to him with selfish reasons. And yet, he weaves us in. In Christ, God was crushed so that we could be brought into the covenant. He was cast out so that we could be welcomed in. And now, He has brought us all near the altar. And right now, even in this moment, as we get a chance to respond, I want you to recognize that He is showing us His power. He's calling us to intimacy as we come here and receive this bread and this cup. He's inviting us to come and be changed from a people who try to use him to a people who love him. Those verses that I read earlier bouncing around the scripture are verses to you. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden.
and I'll give you rest. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that You are present with us. That You know us. That You long to make us a part of Your story, but we know we've lived in rebellion. God, forgive us and change us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.